If you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. In the church Bible, that's page 1243, and in the large print, 1928. Before we read chapter 14, I want to take a moment to try to show how it belongs very much with chapters 12 and 13, which we've looked at in the two previous weeks. Chapter 12 showed us that Satan was defeated by Jesus' death and resurrection. As a result of that, he was thrown down to the earth. He was thrown to the earth where he will now wage war on the church. That's his activity at the present time. He will wage war in the church until Jesus comes back. And then chapter 13 showed us how Satan wages war. He does it through representatives. We were shown in chapter 13 two of his representatives, the beast from the sea, who comes with Satan's aggressive power in this world, and then the beast from the land, who comes with Satan's subtle, seductive approach. We saw that both those beasts have many incarnations throughout history. They keep coming back in different individuals and different governments and regimes and institutions throughout history. And both beasts have exactly the same aim. To lead men and women away from worshipping the Lamb who was slain. The first beast we saw tries to lead people away from the Lamb by violence and the threat of violence. The second beast tries to deceive, tries to achieve exactly the same thing by deceiving people through seduction and temptation. Now today we do not see too much of the first beast here in our part of the world. We might see a glimpse of him now and again. But in general, it's the second beast you and I have to be alert for. In England in 2015, Satan's main tactic is not to try and crush the church with violence. It's to try and seduce us into worshipping false gods. Satan doesn't come and say, I'm Satan, bow and worship me. He wants to get us loving the rewards of this world so much that we give our allegiance to this world instead of to the Lamb who was slain. And when we do that, Revelation 13 said, when we give our allegiance to this world and everything it offers, actually, we're really bowing and worshipping Satan. That's where chapter 13 left us. But chapter 14 is a vital part of the picture. Because chapter 14 takes us right to the end of the line. It shows us the harvest at the end of the age. It takes us beyond the temptations and the pressures of the present and it shows us two different endings to the story. First, it shows us how things end up for those who give their allegiance to the Lamb. Then, how things end up for those who give their allegiance to the beast. 
So chapter 14 is here to say to us for the next few moments, forget the things that are attractive to you right now. Forget the things that seem most important in this moment. And instead, look ahead to how things end up. When you side with a lamb or when you side with a beast. If we'll listen to chapter 14, we will make the right choices today because we know the end result of the choices we make today. So let's read chapter 14. (coughs) John says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or in their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God, who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, 
because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because the grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This is God's word. Chapter 14 describes the harvest at the end of time. First, the harvest of those who side with the lamb. Then, the harvest of those who side with the beast. So first, in verses 1 to 5, the harvest of those who side with the lamb. Verse 1 says, Then I looked, and there before me was the lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We know from earlier in the book, the lamb here is the risen Jesus. And here John sees him standing on Mount Zion. Zion was used in the Old Testament as another name for Jerusalem. And the book of Revelation looks forward to a new Jerusalem, an eternal city where God dwells with his people forever. The end of Revelation is going to describe that city in detail when we get there. And it's that heavenly, eternal city that's being spoken about here. But at this point in the book, the focus is not on what the city is going to be like. The focus is on who's going to be there. 144,000 who have the Lamb's name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. We have been introduced to this group before, back in chapter 7, and we spent a good deal of time there thinking about what it all meant. And so the question we can ask again is, who are they? Who are these people? The answer is given down in verse 3. They are those redeemed from the earth. This redemption was explained in Revelation chapter 5. John saw those round gods thrown in heaven singing a new song. They were singing to the risen Lamb and the words of the song went like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. That word purchased is the same word that's translated here as redeemed. So these people standing with the Lamb in his eternal city are those who have been purchased or redeemed by the Lamb's death in their place. 
But we might ask, well, are there literally 144,000 of them? Well, no. We've seen throughout this book that numbers are used in symbolic ways. And this number refers to the completeness of God's people. We saw that when we looked at chapter 7. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 representing the Old Testament people of God, founded on the 12 sons of Jacob, times 12 representing the New Testament people of God, founded on the 12 apostles, times 1,000, showing that everyone is present and accounted for. Not one of those purchased by the Lamb has been lost. So it's important to see this number is not setting a limit to the amount of people in heaven. It represents the completeness of those gathered in heaven. Then what about this statement that the names of the Lamb and His Father are written on the foreheads of these redeemed people? Well, this is the alternative to what we read in chapter 13. Look back just a little bit to chapter 13, verse 16. In a passage speaking about the beast. We're told, It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, slave, to receive a mark. And their right hands are on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. So the point is, everybody has a mark. Either the beasts or the lambs. There is no third group, according to Revelation. There's no unmarked group. It doesn't matter whether you intend to get the beast's mark. If you don't take the lamb's mark, you have the beast. And as we saw last week, this is about allegiance and ownership. It's not some kind of visible mark on your skin. The point is, who has your allegiance? Who owns you? The beast or the lamb? You can't opt out. You are siding with one or the other. Everybody has a mark. Here in verses 1 to 5, we're being shown those who gave their allegiance to the Lamb. In spite of all the pressure to side with the beast, whether that pressure came in the form of aggression and violence, or whether it came in the form of seduction and temptation, these are the men and women who endured what the beast threw at them. And they did it for the reward of an eternity with the Lamb. Look how their endurance is described for us down in verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. What does that mean? Are we supposed to understand from this that only male virgins go to heaven? Are we being told here that sex defiles us? 
Well, if that was what was being said, it would certainly contradict the rest of Scripture, where sex in the context of marriage is seen as a very, very good thing. In fact, the key to understanding this is to remember we're reading a book full of pictures and symbols. This is a book where Jesus, remember, has been pictured as both a victorious lion and a slain lamb. Although physically, Jesus is neither a lion or a lamb. He's a man. This is a book where churches are described as lampstands. And prayers are pictured as incense. So it shouldn't be a big surprise to find those who give their allegiance to the Lamb being described as virgins. This is not about physical virginity. It's a picture of some kind of purity from defilement. But it's not explained for us here. It's only as we read on in the book we discover what kind of purity this is. Later on in this chapter we're introduced very briefly to Babylon. But it's not until chapter 17 that we find out who Babylon is. It's not the geographical city of Babylon. By the time John is writing, that geographical city had lost its significance completely. But because of Babylon's past history as a place that set itself up against God, Babylon is used in Revelation to represent any place that sets itself up against God. And in chapter 17, Babylon is called the great prostitute. She entices the people of God and the people of the earth in general to have sex with her to enjoy what she has to offer. But later still, Revelation describes a very different picture. Not a prostitute offering herself, but the wedding supper of the Lamb. The future day when those who belong to the Lamb enter perfect and eternal enjoyment. So we have a future wedding described and also a prostitute calling us in the present. And if we come back to chapter 14 with those later pictures in our mind, things become a little bit clearer. We realize that the women in verse 4 are the incarnations in various forms of Babylon the prostitute. All the ways that she calls us and offers herself to us. These women represent all the alternatives to God, all the false saviors that appeal to us in this world. And the reference to the virginity of the 144,000, that's another way of saying they didn't give themselves to the prostitute. They kept themselves for the wedding supper of the Lamb. They remained loyal to the Lamb. Now, if you've been following that, you'll have realized by now, Revelation is a book that mixes its metaphors. In other words, it uses a variety of pictures at different times to describe one thing. We've already mentioned the lion who is the lamb. 
That's mixing metaphors. Now we're seeing a variety of pictures describing the church. In earlier chapters, the church was pictured as a temple and a city. Here, the church is like a man who turns down a female prostitute. And later, the church is the bride of the Lamb. We're not supposed to try and combine all those pictures. We're to let each picture stand on its own. Each picture is showing us a particular truth about the people of God. And the point here is that those who are in the New Jerusalem are those who follow the Lamb, not the beast or the prostitute. These are the people who sided with the Lamb, whatever the cost. And now they were with the Lamb. They're singing the new song of the Lamb. They are the first fruits of the harvest at the end of the age. In the Old Testament, the first fruits of the harvest were brought to God. They were set apart for God and they were received by God at the temple in Jerusalem. Here we're seeing the harvest at the end of time. And the first fruits are not grain or wheat. The first fruits are men and women who are received by God. And they are received in the new Jerusalem. We're told that no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. In the context of chapters 13 and 14, this means they didn't buy into the lies and deceit of the beast and his friend Babylon the prostitute. These people continued to confess the truth that Jesus is Lord. They didn't follow other lords or give their worship to other lords. And so they stand before God blameless. But it's not because they lived perfect lives. It's because they trusted in the perfect lamb. And now they share in his blamelessness forever. That is the eternal reward of those who side with the lamb. What about the rest? What about those who refuse to give allegiance to the Lamb? Either because they love the beast and everything he offers, or simply because they want an easy life here and now. And so they go along with the beast. What does the harvest at the end of the age mean for them? Verses 6 to 20 describe the harvest of those who side with the beast. Verse 1 began with a picture of God's people and God's eternal city. Now we see an angel making an announcement to everybody else. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is not a call to turn and be saved. That opportunity has now passed. 
This is an announcement that the hour of judgment has come. These are the people who rejected the eternal gospel of the Lamb. They worship the beast and his idols. But now they will be forced to acknowledge the one true God. This is not going to be willing worship. This is the fulfillment of Scripture's promise that one day every knee will bow. Willingly or unwillingly. Then hot on the heels of the first angel comes another in verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. I've said already that more details about Babylon will come later in the book. For now, it's enough to know those who don't side with the Lamb end up drunk on the maddening wine of Babylon's adulteries. In other words, these men and women listened to the lies of the beast. All the promises that were made by this world. They sampled what this world offered them. And they became so intoxicated They ended up with no desire to resist. No desire to pull back. In fact, the more of her wine they drank, the more they wanted her. Their passion for her grew. That's the sense of maddening wine. They were mad with lust for her. And they gave themselves up to her. This picture uses alcohol and sex. But it's important to realize this is an illustration. It's illustrating the many, many ways we can be drunk on this world and filled with lust for more of this world. We can be completely sober, physically speaking, but drunk on ambition to rise up the ladder. We talk about the corporate ladder and the housing ladder. We can be intoxicated with those things. Or we can be maddened with lust for popularity until we're controlled by what people think of us. Controlled with trying to impress them and get their admiration. How many people have a lust for security? setting themselves up financially. We can get drunk on our bank balance. There are many vintages of this world's wine. But once we start to drink it, very soon we're too drunk to even consider anything else. Drunk people tend to be single-minded. How can I take up my cross and follow Jesus when I need people to like me? I need them to promote me. I need to gather up all I can of what people can pay me and sell me. How could I even think about Jesus? On one level, this is just another way of saying what chapter 13 said. 
The beast wants our allegiance. But the added twist here is the drunkenness. No one gets to pick and choose how far they go with the beast. Some people think they can. They think they'll negotiate with him and they'll play his system to their own advantage. They think they'll take some of what he offers, but they're going to stay captain of their own ship. And they'll break free from him when they've had enough. But it doesn't work that way. His friend Babylon will get you drunk. And then you're going nowhere. Despite all of your good intentions. And it doesn't end there. Chapter 14 goes on to tell us, if during this life we drink the first bottle of wine from the great prostitute, if we drink that bottle, then after this life, we will have a second bottle to drink. Verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image, and receive its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image for anyone who receives the mark of its name. At the time John is writing, people drank a lot of wine. But it was cut wine. It was diluted by at least one part wine to three parts water. And here, God's wrath is compared to wine. His wrath that's poured out on Judgment Day. And the message is, all the wrath God poured out previously was like diluted wine compared to the great day of his wrath. All the wrath we've seen in the Old Testament, on Sodom and Gomorrah, on the Canaanites, all the wrath depicted earlier in Revelation, the four horsemen delivering his wrath in limited ways throughout history. All of that, we are being told, was like cut wine compared to the full strength wine yet to come. And all those who turned away from the Lamb and enjoyed Babylon's wine will be forced to drink the wine of God's wrath forever. What follows here is a picture of hell. It's described as a place of restless, relentless torment. I said it's a picture of hell. Does that mean the stuff about sulfur and smoke are not literal? Well, think about it this way. When Revelation gives us a picture of something, it's using things we know 
to describe a greater reality. So, for example, when we saw the throne room of heaven in chapter 4, John struggled to describe what he saw. Because none of us have ever seen it. So he described it by comparing it to things we have seen. But does that mean then that the actual glory of God is less than the glory in John's description? No, the actual glory of God is much greater than John was able to describe. And it's the same with Revelation's descriptions of hell. It's described in terms of things we know. But the reality will be much worse than the picture. So there is no comfort at all to be found by reading what the Bible says about hell and saying, oh, it's just symbolic. It's symbolic of something far more terrible than the symbol. As we read this today, we have to realize it is sheer mercy on God's part to give us these horrible, horrible pictures. To give us a sense of what it means to suffer his wrath eternally. It's mercy because we still have opportunity to take this to heart and repent. The hour of his judgment hasn't come yet. Today, you and I can still side with the Lamb. And if you have sided with the Lamb, but your faith is wavering today, if the great prostitute is starting to look appealing, if siding with the Lamb is starting to look like too much of a tough life, then thank God for these two pictures of the end. These pictures of heaven and hell. Thank God we can look at the final harvest ahead of time and then choose wisely today. That's what verse 12 calls us to do. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. We've been told that in hell there is no rest. But those who side with the Lamb will have eternal rest. And that will make all of today's labor worthwhile. That word doesn't just mean hard work. It includes all the things that come our way because we follow the Lamb. Hardship, trouble, rejection maybe, difficulty. All of that will give way to rest. Verses 14 to 16 are here to assure us the harvest of the earth is certain. It is going to happen. Verse 14, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. 
Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. When a farmer sows his seed, no doubt the harvest seems a long, long way off. And as we live our lives, we're sowing seed too. We do that every day by making decisions. Either to trust in the Lamb and follow Him, or to give our allegiance to false saviors and follow them. The idea of a harvest for all those decisions might seem a long way off to us today. But it will come. We will receive the consequences of what we chose in this life. The start of chapter 14 showed us the consequences for those who follow the Lamb. They will begin to sing when harvest time comes. But the rest of the harvest will be horrible. Verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because the grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. In his vision, John sees something that would have been a common sight at harvest time. Grapes were taken from the vines and thrown into a big bath. Then the workers would jump in and they would tread those grapes down to a pulp. Some of you have seen this. And as the juice flowed out of the bath, more grapes were being thrown in. It was a well-known picture. But when John looks closely at this wine press in the vision... He sees it's not juice flowing out, it's blood. And God himself is treading this winepress. This is a picture of God's enemies being trampled by God's wrath. We've come across this word trampled before. In chapter 11, The people of God were trampled in this life as they witnessed for Jesus and remained faithful to Jesus. So here's the question Revelation 14 is asking us. You are going to be trampled by someone. Who's it going to be? This world or Almighty God? you are going to have someone's mark of ownership. So whose mark are you going to have? The beasts or the lambs? 
you are going to face someone's wrath. So whose wrath are you going to face? The wrath of the dragon and the beast who wage war on the church? Or the wrath of the Lamb who loves the church? You are going to be part of the harvest at the end of the age. So are you going to be among the first fruits received by God to join the song of the Lamb? Or are you going to be thrown to the winepress to receive the justice of God? And it is justice, full and complete justice. That's the point of this blood rising high to the bridles for 1,600 stadia. That's about 180 miles. But the point here is not about literal distance. It's a picture of complete justice. And if you and I read this and think it's a bit of an over-the-top picture, then we have no idea of the judgment we deserve. We have no idea what it would mean for God to give us the full measure of his justice. We don't like passages like this, do we? Maybe we read this and we wonder what kind of a God we're dealing with. We'll notice one little detail in verse 20. We're told that God tramples his wine press outside the city. This is the city we saw at the start of the chapter, the New Jerusalem. The eternal city. This trampling goes on outside the city because the city is holy. The people in the city are safe. And this picture of the final day of God's wrath is echoing an earlier day of wrath. The day when God entered his own winepress. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus suffered outside the city gate. And he did it to make his people holy through his own blood. When Jesus died on the cross, outside the city of Jerusalem, he was going through the wine press of God's wrath. So you and I wouldn't have to. That death outside Jerusalem means you and I can enter the new Jerusalem. We can be safe there forever. We can enter the new Jerusalem, instead of the wine press. So let's ask again, what kind of God are we dealing with? We're dealing with the God who is holy and just. He will punish sin. And we're dealing with the God who is love. And in love, God the Son let his own blood flow to pay our debt. Today we live in the day of God's patience. 
great patience and great grace. If we will put our trust in Jesus, we will join those redeemed from the earth by his blood. We'll be part of the harvest received by God. But if we make any other choice, we are choosing to side with the beast. Of course, we might not see it that way, but the Bible sees it that way. We're choosing to join the other part of the harvest, and we will go through God's wine press ourselves. Today is the day to run to the Lamb for mercy. Well, we still can. And today is the day to remain faithful to the Lamb, whatever pressures or temptations we're facing. We're going to close by reminding one another that Jesus is our only shelter from the coming wrath. Let's sing these last songs in praise of God and by way of encouragement.